Glad that you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you would, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. We're looking at verses 7 through 13. If you need a Bible, Stuart is up front with Bibles in his hand. Uh, he'll just bring one right to your seat. Just uh, turn there or turn your tablets on and your iPhone on and turn to Revelation 3. There goes the worship. Good thing we only have one more song left. <laughs> You know, I'll probably pick them up because during the study, they'll be blowing all over the place. So there we go. What's the last song? Let's see. There. All All right. Revelation chapter three in around 95 A.D., Apostle John, after they tried to boil him unsuccessfully in oil, was then banished to the island of Patmos. There on the island of Patmos, the Lord Jesus spoke to him and told him in Revelation 1, verse 11 and 12, he said, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then Jesus began in chapter 2 with a special word, special letter to each one of these churches that the entire book of Revelation was then to be given to, so they would read the whole book of Revelation. So we've been doing this special series on the seven letters for the seven churches, and we're down to the last two. This morning we're just going to look at number six, the church of Philadelphia. So with that, let's read together verses 7 through 13. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says, he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name, he who has an ear to hear, Let let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The title of my study this morning is Philadelphia, the Church on the Mend. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your word and to know, Lord God, that it's your desire to speak to our hearts through your word. And so we pray as your church that we'd have ears to receive all that you have for us today. Father, that we would not only gain information but application in our lives that we might know you better, serve you better, love you even more. We pray, Father, also if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to make a commitment to you, that yet to, to know what it means to have their sin forgiven, to be born again, would you especially touch their heart today, we pray. So we thank you for this time. We praise you for it. As you continue to anoint it, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I heard a story about a man that was very ill. In fact, it was an illness that was potentially fatal. So he took his wife with him to see the doctor. And the doctor did a thorough checkup on the man and then afterwards went out to talk to the wife. And he said, ma'am, I want to talk to you about your husband. 
Chances are he's going to die. He has this illness. It's compounded by extreme stress. However, if you follow the directions I'm about to give you, I believe your husband can make a recovery. And here's what you need to do for the next six months to a year. He says you need to create a stress-free environment. By that I mean you don't trouble him with anything. For instance, in the morning, make him his favorite meal. Whatever it is, you know, you make that, if necessary, from scratch. And don't talk to him about problems, you know, with the kids or with the, with the bills. Don't burden him with chores. Stress-free. Same thing for lunch. A gourmet meal, preferably. Dinner, whatever he wants to eat. And here's what's really important. You need to just smother him with compliments. And affirm him and tell him how wonderful he is and show lots and lots of affection towards him. And if you do this for six months to a year, I believe your husband will make a full recovery. And she said, well, thank you, doctor. She left the office and they're driving home together. And the husband turned to the wife and said, what did the doctor say to you? She said, you're going to die. Do you ever notice how sometimes we can be sick and we can sort of be in, in denial of being sick? You know, you, you kind of feel that something going on in your throat and just a little bit of a, a sinus thing. You go, okay, I'm, I'm okay, I'm all right. Then you start sniffling and then clearing your throat a lot. Then you start feeling a little lethargic, a little tired and, oh no, I'm sick. And then it hits you, you know, it gets worse and, and you got the nausea and you don't want to eat and your head's throbbing and you don't want to talk to anybody and you just want to disappear and, and the day passes and another day passes and another day passes and, and then you wake up and you go, okay, I think I'm feeling better. You hop in the shower, you get ready on your way to work and all of a sudden you're going, okay, I'm feeling it again. I'm, I'm not, okay, I'm not up to full speed yet. That's the picture of the church as Jesus sees it, Jesus sees it in the last days of this church. It's not a super church, Philadelphia. It's a church that has been sick, but it's returning back to life. It's a church that's making a comeback. It's a church being revived. It's a church of the last days, the church of Philadelphia here, Revelation chapter three. Now remember, as we've looked at these letters, uh, uh, to the seven churches, we remember the four things that we can apply them with. Number one, they're applied historically. These words were actually delivered to historical churches at that time in Asia. Secondly, they're applied prophetically. We have an overview of the history of the Christian church from God's perspective, beginning on the day of Pentecost and ending at the return of the Lord. And then thirdly, they're applied practically. They teach us a lot about church life. And we see every aspect of the church today represented in these seven churches. And then fourthly, and most significantly, it's addressed to us individually, applied personally. These are words that Jesus has to each one of us this morning. Now, to Jesus, the church was a very special church in that it was one of two churches of the seven that didn't receive a criticism. It didn't receive a, a condemnation or any blame from Christ. In fact, Jesus says in verse 9, there's going to be a day that comes when they will know that I have loved you. So it was a favorite church of Jesus. Now understand, there's no such thing as a perfect church. There are, there are good ones, but no perfect ones. And it's been said, if you find a perfect church, you can't go to it. Because at that point, it'll no longer be perfect. Which is true. The church is made up of imperfect people. We all have our flaws. We all have our mistakes. And so did the people in the church of Philadelphia. But it was still a solid church. Of the seven churches that Jesus wrote to, I think this is the one that we would most likely want to emanate, to be like. 
And so when you hear the name Philadelphia, what comes to your mind? You know, cream cheese, maybe, I don't know. Uh, the Liberty Bell, Philadelphia, Rocky Balboa, dun, 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 dun. yeah, Rocky, Adrian. But this is, this is a, really, Philadelphia is a church, it should be the church in revival. The church in revival. Now most of us know that the, the word Philadelphia means brotherly love. But did you know that the William Penn, the founder of the historic American city, named it after this obscure city in Asia Minor because he wanted it to be known as a place where they could come and they could worship freely in. Now historically, the biblical Philadelphia was located 28 miles southeast of Sardis. But man, those churches were as different as night and day. Sardis was a dead church. Philadelphia was a revived, alive church. The church in Philadelphia, they had vision uh, to reach the lost. They were faithful. They were obedient to the Lord. And as a result, God set before them an open door of opportunities. You know, that's the way the Lord really works in our lives. If you're faithful in the little things, He's going to open up doors of opportunities for us. Faithful in, in greater things. Now, prophetically speaking, the church in Philadelphia speaks of the church age that started during the time of the Great Awakening. It's the age that came after the time of the Reformation, starting in the 18th century to this present day. In England, the awakening began with the Puritan movement. The Puritans included John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, a a great book. If you've not read, I encourage you to read it. The time of John Newton, the the writer of Amazing Grace. The awakening also brought about the great Wesleyan revival and George Whitfield's preaching throughout England. Here in America, we had a great awakening with men like Jonathan Edwards, a visionary for Christian missionaries. Hudson Taylor took the gospel to inland China. And then there were the, the, so many great evangelists of the, the church history that emerged. George Whitfield. John Wesley, Charles Hayden Spurgeon, Charles Finney, Dwight Moody, and I would say all the way up to to Billy Graham, a man who would share the gospel with, with, with more people than anyone else in history. See, out of this dead, deteriorating Reformation Sardis church, God brought forth new light, new life, and a bright, vibrant awakening through this Christian church. Now, if you're taking notes this morning... I want to point out four things that made this church great. And the Lord talks about that. Number one, they were a church under authority. Under authority. Look at verse 7. And to the angel, or we've looked at in the past, means to the pastor of this church in Philadelphia, write, These things says, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no no one opens. Two things, he says. These things says, He who is holy, and he who is true. So Jesus is saying, number one, this is coming from someone who is holy. Now, we know all throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as being holy. He is in perfect holiness. Holy, holy means set apart or distinct. God is holy in the sense that he is morally perfect. His character is without flaws. But more than that, it means that he is completely removed from any sin whatsoever. Isaiah the prophet refers to him uh, often uh, as, as God, as the Holy One. Isaiah 40, verse 25 says, To whom then will you liken me, or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Isaiah 43, 15, I am the Lord your God, the Creator of Israel, your King. 
They didn't say the words. You're holy. I'm the Lord your God. You're holy one. The point of it. Make the point and don't say the words. You're holy one. The creator of Israel, your king. See that phrase, holy one, it's a, it's a, a title of character, but it's also a description of his deity. Because it's Jesus who is saying he is the holy one. This is a blatant declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. Then number two, Jesus says he's also true. Now the word true there, there's two different Greek words for true. One word is alethis, which means true as opposed to false. And the other word is alethinos, which means true in the sense of real versus fake or unreal. Here Jesus is declaring he's real. He's the source of reality. He's the real deal, especially in that time where they had all these false gods and, 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 and goddesses that they were worshiping at that time. Jesus is saying it. I'm the Holy One, the true and only God. Claiming his authority because of who he is. But he also reveals that he has one who has the key of David. Now, chapter one, uh, Jesus says he holds the key of hell and, and death. But here he has the key to salvation and blessing. So he's got the key to open us the door because he has the authority for salvation and blessing. That's like this. If I want to say, go up and talk to Yadier Molina or Adam Wainwright, you know, St. Louis Cardinals. And I say, all right. I'm going to walk up to the door of the locker room, knock on the door, and say, a security guard there, and I say, I, I'm here to see uh, my friend uh, Yadier and, and, and Adam. You know, and now, I don't think they're going to say, yeah, come on right in. They may say, follow me right this way, as they escort me off the property and, and arrest me. I don't know. Now, if I'm walking with Mr. William DeWitt Jr., the owner of the St. Louis Cardinals, and he says, Mr. Humphrey is with me. Guess what? I'm in. I am in. I'm excited. Why? Because, man, he, Mr. DeWitt Jr. has the authority. He has the ownership to get me in. In the same way, we belong to Jesus Christ. And he has the authority and he has the ownership to not only get you into heaven, but get you where he wants you to go, to send you where he wants it to send you. And he has a plan and he has a purpose to get you there. Because of who Jesus is, as we stick close to him, he opens up those doors of opportunities for us to experience new and exciting things. And he's promised us good things, including a life filled with purpose, not just empty happiness. He has authority also to make it happen. And this brings us to point number two, as why this was a great church. This was a great church because number two, Jesus gave them divine appointments, divine opportunities. Look at the beginning of verse 8. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. Now, what is this open door that Jesus is referring to here? I think the Apostle Paul really explains it for us well in his letter to the Colossians. In Colossians 4, verse 3, he's asking for prayer, and he writes this, Meanwhile, praying for us also, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains. He was praying for an opportunity for the door to open that he could talk about Jesus Christ. Now, it takes it a step further in 2 Corinthians 2.12, as Donald Trump would say. Uh, I'm so sorry I brought that up, you know. Really so sorry. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to trust to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. It was a door that Jesus opened, a a, a great door was opened to do what? To preach the gospel, to get the gospel out, 
That's the door that Jesus is speaking of here in Revelation 3.8. And that should be our same prayer. That we should uh, do everything we can to go through that door of opportunity to preach the gospel. And the question is, will we? Will we step through that door? And I think a lot of the problem is for us as believers is we don't often think about it. We don't think about always sharing our faith. A lot of times we as believers are kind of caught up in our own little world. You know, we're not really thinking of others. We're thinking, well, oh, I got to go here and I got to do this and I got to, I got to get this done and I got this on my plate. And we don't really look for those opportunities. We, we maybe get so caught up in ourselves we forget the fact that, that, that we get the most blessed when we really start blessing others. One person said this, quote, unless a man's faith saves him out of selfishness into service, it will certainly never save him out of hell into heaven. We should be saved from selfishness to service. So Jesus is saying, listen, I have an open door for you. Paul, also in 1 Corinthians 16:9 says, for a great and effective door is open to me and there are many adversaries. So Paul is saying, yeah, I've had doors open, but don't think it was easy. I had adversaries that opposition coming against you. And we need to recognize that just because a door opens for you doesn't mean it's always going to be smooth sailing. I think sometimes we think, you know, if an open door is something that we just walk through and everything becomes a breeze, the whole world just responds with, oh, wow, you're here to share the gospel message. That's great. I've been wanting to hear that. What must I do to be saved? It doesn't happen that way. See, an open door, even though it's an effective door, will almost always have opposition. And we'll look at that a little bit more in a moment. But the point is, Satan doesn't want to see people come to Christ. So there will always be opposition. But don't get discouraged by that. Rather, get excited about the opportunities. I think of the last 50 years or so, uh, the doors that have been locked and, and barred shut from receiving the gospel message, yet God has opened up those doors. You know, doors in, 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 in Russia, I mean, uh, you know, Poland, Germany, even places like Iran. There's an underground church that is growing there. China, huge underground church. God has opened up a door, even though man shuts everything out, God can open up the door to come in. And I think for some that we read this first part of this verse and, and, and says, well, this is great. God has given me an open door. But realize there's a second part of this verse as well. God shuts doors as well. Look at the end of verse 7 again. He shuts and no one opens. Now, I think that can be a problem many times for us. We're seeking to go in a certain direction, praying about it, and suddenly the Lord shuts the door in it. And he says, no. What do we do? We don't like to take no for an answer. And we go buy that car that we know we can't afford. Or you start to date that non-Christian that you know the Lord has said no, and your life is miserable. And we say, God, how can you let this happen to me? What's well, today? I shut the door. You want around me. See, the Lord shuts doors for good reasons. He knows what's best for us. He, he knows what will help us and what will harm us. It's interesting to me that the Lord says in verse 8, I know your works. And that means a couple of things. Number one, that he's certainly aware of everything that you're doing and serving him. He keeps perfect track of all that you do. But number two, uh, he also knows about the works that he set before you that you're yet to discover. You don't know what God has in store for you. God is saying, man, i got something in store for you. If I'm saying no over here, this means I have something else for you greater over here. And, as, and the Lord, through serving him, he will lead you and he will guide you and open doors and shut doors to get you to, the, to that place where you need to be. I think the Apostle Paul, 
in uh, Acts 16, verse 7 and 8, says there that after they had come to Mysia, they had tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So by passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. says there the Spirit did not permit them. Now, Paul could have said, the Spirit did not permit us, but we won anyway because we really wanted to go there. It doesn't say that. They didn't go. Why? Because God had a plan. And we find that out later in, in Acts 16, verse 9, where we read that uh, Paul says, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. See, God did not want him to go there because he had something better for him. And we need to make sure that we're not trying to knock down a door that the Lord has shut or trying to shut a door that the Lord has opened. How do we know the difference? Well, I believe the key to knowing if a door is opening, that there's going to be an absence of striving. It's not going to be strife about it. You know, that's always a a good indication that, that God is in something. There'll be that absence of striving and strife. But that doesn't mean that there won't be hard work involved. In fact, Paul spoke of laboring to the point of exhaustion. There's a difference between hard work and striving to make something happen. But here's my point, and I believe the Lord is telling us here that there's a lot of open doors out there. We just need to be looking for them. We need to be praying. Jesus, open up these doors of opportunity. Lord, open our eyes to see who you'd have uh, and where you'd have us to go. Because Jesus said that his desire for us as a church and as individuals is that we would bear fruit and and that more abundantly. By this my Father is glorified, he said, if we bear much fruit, John 15, 8. The way to do that is to boldly go through those open doors that God places before you today. Now, Now, what type of doors does he open for us? Listen, every friendship that you have is an open door for the gospel to be shared. Every job you go to at your workplace is an open door. It's your mission field. The person you speak to in the grocery store, your classmates at school, the parents on your kid's soccer team. You know, you have that opportunity. In fact, you're going to be able to go to places, a lot of places tomorrow that I could never go to because you're out into the world. You're not of the world, but you're in the world. And you'll be talking to people that I may never see, never be able to talk to about Jesus, but you'll be there. And again, the challenge is for us to look for those opportunities and take, uh, walk through those doors that God has opened. I think of Joseph. I mean, he could have become dis- discouraged and just given up. His, his, you know, sold into slavery by his brothers, unjustly accused by Potiphar's wife, you know, thrown into prison. But he made the most of it. And then when the butler and the baker, and not the candlestick maker, just the butler and the baker, came to him, showed up, Joseph... They were, you know, notice they were sad. Notice they were bummed out. They were troubled. What did he do? He talked to them. He shared with them. He ministered to them. I wonder what would happen if tomorrow morning we started noticing people around us and simply asked, hey, how are you doing today? What's going on? You know, and, and you know, so often, oh, I'm fine. I mean, you know, you know that, okay, oh, I'm fine. Doesn't really mean they're fine. Okay, dig a little bit deeper. Find out how they really are. You know, take the opportunity. I mean, just take those opportunities as they come to share with those around us. Now, for some, I know for some personalities, it's easy for them to do. They have no problem walking up to complete strangers and say, do you know Jesus Christ? I want to talk to you. They have no problem with that. For others, it can be a little bit difficult because fear can keep us from walking through that open door. 
afraid. How are they going to respond? What are they going to say? But see, that's why we need to remember the power in which we go out and we share our faith. It's not of our own. Jesus said in, in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses to me. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the parts of the earth. See, we need to remember that God is so faithful to meet us in those situations to empower us by the Holy Spirit to handle it, to give us the words, to know what to do in those situations. I think of a funny story about sort of Tommy. He was a neat Christian kid that would bring his Bible to school and it would sit on his desk. Well, in his science class, his science teacher was a devout atheist. And all semester long, he would mock Tommy and make fun of him. Finally, towards the end of the semester, he decided he would once and for all show little Tommy that God did not exist. So the teacher proposed an experiment. Reaching into his refrigerator, he produced a raw egg and held it up. And he said, I'm going to drop this egg on the floor. Gravity will pull it towards the floor and the egg will most certainly break apart. Looking at Tommy with a challenge, he said, Now, Tommy, I want you to pray a prayer right now and ask your God to keep this egg from breaking when it hits the floor. If he can do that, then you have proven your point and I'll have to admit there is a God. Well, after pondering the challenge for a moment, Tommy slowly stood up to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Tommy prayed, I pray that when my teacher drops the egg, it will break into a hundred pieces. And also, Lord, I pray that when that egg does break, my teacher will have a massive heart attack and die. Amen. <laughs> After a unison gasp, the class sat still in silence. For a moment, the teacher did nothing. At last, he looked at Tommy and then the egg. Without a word, he carefully placed the egg back in the carton. <laughs> class dismissed, and the teacher then sat down. See, again, as we uh, go through those doors that the Lord opens, He empowers us with the words to say, to, to, with strength, uh, to continue on. Now, sometimes we, we, what? We fear rejection. We fear failing, and, and that keeps us from going through that comfort, uh, through that open door. Uh, and really, I think what it really is, a fear of moving us out of our comfort zone. You know, we go down, our, our go team go down we, Friday, first Friday of the month, and, and there's a lot of homeless folks down there. And we start sharing with them, and sometimes it takes you out of your comfort zone. Because you're smelling something that you haven't smelled in a long time, and you go, oh man, okay, Lord, I know you've called me to do this. And, and you're out of your comfort zone. You know, sometimes these people are, are you know, they're very confrontational. It's, it's out of your comfort zone. You know, it's not like, okay, I'd like to go minister to the wealthy in Springfield. I'll knock on their nice homes and we'll sit down in a nice room. No. See, we get out of that comfort zone and, 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 uh, and we need to just really just make ourselves available. Yeah, that may put us in a place of vulnerability, but, but, but look at Jesus. Look what he did. I mean, he knew that people would reject him. He knew that they would twist his words, yet he still loved them and ministered to them. You know, they called him a friend of sinners. And so, you see, as a Christian, God simply says to us, no comfort zones allowed. But rightly said, church is not to be a parking lot, but a launching pad. And I, and I like that. Next, the third reason this was a great church, the Lord says in verse 8, is the Lord says, for you have a little strength. You have a little strength. That word little is a Greek word, micros, and it's where we get our English word microscope or microorganism or microwave or microbiology or micromanage or microsoft or microphone or micro you can think of all of them you, you get the picture small tiny in number small in quantity small in dignity that's small 
And the reason that Jesus had opened this door of opportunity to them, which no man could ever possibly shut, is because they were small in number. They were small in quantity. They were small in dignity. They, they were small, but God was going to do great big things. Now, that does seem like a contradiction, doesn't it? Because we have the natural tendency to think that Jesus only looks for those that are most the most talented, the strongest gifted person. Man, they could, man, they could, man, they could play music. Oh, man, that's great. God's going to use them. Or, man, they could speak so eloquently. Oh, God's going to use them. But more often than not, it's those with a little strength that Jesus wants to bless, that Jesus wants to use. First Corinthians one twenty seven. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. I think this should all be our, our life's verse. You know, foolishness. God, you know, the Lord's people have never been numerically uh, the majority. But they've always been more than conquerors. I think of Abraham. One man went out with his servants and defeated the armies of four different kings. Or Gideon. When the Lord, you know, kept shrinking his army down to 300, defeated an army that was so fast. The Bible says in Judges 7:12 that all the people of the east were lying in the valleys as numerous as locusts, and the camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude, which is 300 men. Or think about Elijah stood alone against 450 of the prophets of Baal. Or after three years of public ministry with Jesus, maybe 120 faithful disciples Yet out of that 120, they turned the world upside down because they were, they were the minority, but they had God on their side. It's that little strength that made this church in Philadelphia a powerful church used by God. Now, why does God work in that way? Paul gives us insight of that in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, when he says, We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. See, in that way, God gets all the glory. It's in the micro, that smallest in man's eyes, that God gets all the glory when he works in and through our lives. And no way. I know that guy. He can't do anything, but look how God used him. It's God. God gets the glory in spite of all our weaknesses and, and frailty. You know, the Lord said this to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians twelve nine. He said, My grace is all you need, my power works best in weakness, so now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, the hardships, the persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. When I am weak, then I am strong. God likes to use and chooses to use those weak things. Second Chronicles 16.9, first part of that tells us, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Finally, the fourth reason that this was a great church, the Lord says in verse 8, said, they have kept my word and have not denied my name. This is so, so important. Because we are living in a, in a time when so many people don't even know the word of God. And that's a big problem. You know, because the Bible warns that one of the signs of the end times is that they're going to be false teachers. There's going to be false prophets, false apostles, even doing lying wonders. That's why now more than ever, we need to keep and know the word of God. I read a statistic this morning that, that and this shocked me, 85% of people that go to church only read their Bibles once a year. But my gosh, 
How is that? C.S. C.S. Lewis gave this warning years ago, and I quote, If you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It means that you have a lot of wrong ones. See, the church of Philadelphia, they guarded and they protected their time spent in studying and obeying God's word. It was the number one priority in their life. Listen, it is so important to keep the word of God, but we must also spread it. A lot of people, they treat the gospel like, like gun collectors, you know, treating their guns. You know, you know, gun collectors, oh, look at the, well, I got this, this is from the Civil War days, and it's hanging on their wall there. Man, check out this new pistol I got, man, I got, and they sit around and they, they clean their guns, they, they talk about their guns, they read their magazine about their guns, nice. May I suggest, take the gun out and go shoot something? Now, 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 Tom, you're freaking me out, okay. Okay, this is an illustration, all right? And I didn't say shoot someone, I said something, you know. But, but, but again, my point is this. People treat the gospel the same way. They talk about the gospel. They debate the gospel. They get in arguments about the gospel. They defend the gospel. Here's a thought. Use the gospel. Preach the gospel. Get the gospel out. Again, Jesus says in verse 8, You have kept my word, but also, he says, You have not denied my name. Boy, in a day and age when the deity of Christ is blatantly denied, not only from the world, we expect that from some seminary students, from, from pulpits across America. I mean, here's a group of believers, Jesus says, who have remained true to him by proclaiming that Jesus is the one who he claimed to be, the God-man who, who died for the sins of the world. Man, this church, you know, I said it's been labeled many things. The revived church, the, the missionary church, the, the serving church. The, all these are accurate. But now I like to call it the Bible-believing church. Because that's the, the very thing the Lord emphasized is that they've kept my word, he says, and they've not denied my name. Man, it's a church got the, the, the word out and they, they, they stuck to it. You know, they didn't put it to one side. They didn't turn to secular counseling to, to cause all their, you know, to solve all their problems. Well, you got this, this syndrome and that syndrome. No, they turned to the word of God. They cracked it open, saw what it said, followed it, and God says, man, you guys are good on this. So that every trial they faced, everything that they had to they care through, they found it all there. Because what? God's Word has everything we need for life and for godliness. This church trusted the Word of God to see them through. That makes it a great church. And, and if we continue to do the same thing, what we do here, you know, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, we're, man, we're in the Word of God. We'll continue to be a great church as well. Now, as a result of this great church, Four things that said why they were a great church. Let me give you four promises that the Lord gives to them. And we'll close with these four promises, but they may take a little bit of time. Number one, the Lord promises vindication. Look at verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. So Jesus calls these first century Jews here, those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of of Satan. Now, as I said already, God has given us an open door to share the gospel, even, even an effective door. But an effective door and an open door will always, almost always face opposition. Satan does not want to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. So there's always going to be opposition. And here's the Lord is bringing up really a group of religious Jews who says, oh, you know, we're, we're of God and we're these Jews. But, but he's saying, man, you're really being used by Satan. 
Now, I think that that satanic opposition is a confirmation that you are on the right track. Because spiritual opportunities will always be met with opposition and obstacles. Wherever God has a church, Satan has his, his chapel or his synagogue. But it's interesting to me that, that the phrase is the synagogue of Satan. And it's referred to twice in the message of Christ to the seven churches. We know that it was first revealed, revealed uh, to the church of Smyrna, the, the suffering church, the persecuted church. And here to the message to the church of Philadelphia. By the way, those are the only two churches that Jesus had nothing but good things to say about them, complimentary things. So it just reminds us that when we're on the right track and we're doing and we're living the word of God, the devil is always going to oppose us. And it's interesting that this opposition came at the hands of religious people. Now, Some of Paul's, Paul's uh, ardent, ardent, ardent critics and harassers were religious Jews. They weren't true Jews because they, were, you know, they weren't honoring the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were blinded by their religion, and it caused them to be bigoted and hateful and destructive. And religion can do that. You know, I don't try to defend religion. People say, well, religion is the cause of all the evil in the world. I'm not going to go that far. But I would say it's the cause of a lot of, of it in, in the world. But, but please understand, I don't include myself in those ranks as a follower of Jesus Christ. Because there's a big difference between religion and a relationship with Jesus Christ. I think, of the, again, the, the Apostle Paul was once Saul of Tarsus, who was so blinded by his religious beliefs that he went down and hunted and killed Christians. But when Saul, the religious man, met Jesus, the risen Lord, became Paul, the man who loved and the man who spread the gospel throughout the most of the world, he had a relationship with Jesus Christ. But again, whenever we find ourselves opposing the preaching of the gospel, listen, we're on the wrong side of the debate. And there'll be those that oppose, you know, critics that oppose it. And sometimes they'll even come from the so-called church opposing how you preach the gospel. Well, the words you say, well, you didn't say it this way or that way, or, or you didn't use these exact words, and so you're really not sharing the gospel with them because you didn't mention this. You didn't mention, give me a break. Okay, just share the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose again from the grave. And if you put your faith and trust in him, he'll forgive you of your sins. And I'll promise you eternal life. Period. That's the gospel. Don't make it difficult. Don't criticize the way you you, you say it. And and certainly don't criticize it if you're not sharing it. Vance Havner made this statement, I quote, If we don't stop using our sickles on one another, we're going to miss the harvest. And sometimes we do do that. You know, we use our sickles on one another. And I think that's why Jesus said the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. And I would add the critics are many and the observers are many, but the laborers are few. So these Jews, they were the devil's tool as he taught to use them to stamp out the testimony of Jesus Christ, destroy these Christians. But Jesus says, hey man, you're going to be vindicated. And I love what he says about them in verse 9. He says, Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now, when's that going to happen? How's that going to happen? Well, Philippians 2, 10 and 11 tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when Jesus says, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you, there's going to come a time where every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess either, yes, Jesus is Lord, or, oh no, Jesus is Lord. 
See, Jesus is saying, hang in there. Those persecuting you right now, those coming against you from the synagogue of Satan, they're going to be saying, oh no, Jesus is Lord. And they will see at that point the love that I have for you. They'll be vindicated. You'll be vindicated. The second promise Jesus gives is in verse 10. The Lord promises preservation. Jesus says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And I shared this at our our men's study on Tuesday evening, something that's preserved. I I saw a study done in 2008. It was of a McDonald's hamburger. And they took one from 1996 and set it right next to the one in 2008. And except for the smell of the 1996 one, they looked exactly the same. I don't ever want to eat a hamburger again like that. I say, oh my, you know, it persevered. It's lasted. I don't know how good it just preserved it in there. But again, Jesus says, because you kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial which should come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. That hour of trial, really you can read about it in chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation. It's called Jacob's sorrow, Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. It's a seven-year period that will end with the return of Jesus Christ. But here Jesus is promising them uh, that, that Christ will preserve them, that he will keep them from that hour of trial. Clearly Jesus is saying that this church will be raptured before the great tribulation begins. They'll be out of here. Next, the third promise that Jesus gives us is found in verse 11. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. So the third promise he says is, Hey, I'm coming quickly. I'm coming quickly. Now, quickly doesn't mean soon. Rather, it has the idea of suddenness. It doesn't mean he's coming immediately, but his coming is going to be all of a sudden, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, as the Bible says. This really is, is the promise that is the hope of the church. See, as a church, we're not looking for the great tribulation period. Nowhere in Scripture are we told to gird up your loins, grit your teeth, clench your fist, and get ready because the great tribulation is coming and you're going to go through it. Never says that. What he did say is we're to be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13 Understand, prophetically speaking, the Philadelphian church represents the revived church, the church that has returned to the Word of God. It's a church that's going to be raptured. It's His true church. And by that I mean it's not any particular denomination, any local church. It's only us that's going to be... No, you know, it's a church all scattered throughout the whole world today. Jesus goes on in verse 11, Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Now, we've looked at this briefly in the past. There are several crowns mentioned in Scripture. They're given to you at the reward seat of Jesus after the church is resurrected and raptured, the Bema seat. The, the, the crown Jesus may have had in mind here could actually be the crown of rejoicing because the crown of rejoicing is given to those, those soul winners who go through those open doors that Jesus has given them to share the gospel. Paul mentions it in 1 Thessalonians two nineteen and 20. For what is our hope? Our joy, our crown of rejoicing, is that not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. See, when we arrive in heaven and the reward seat, Jesus is going to give you crowns that you have earned. Now, we're going to place them all at his feet after he blesses us with that. that so that, what does it mean, though, when he says, let no one take your crown away? How can 
someone takes something from you that you haven't gotten yet. Here's, here's what I believe Jesus is saying, that if you do not go through those open doors on this earth, those doors of opportunities, someone else is going to go through them. I mean, God always has people in this church to share the gospel. And that person will take the crown that you could have earned for yourself. See, it's not a rebuke. It's kind of an incentive program. Okay? It's kind of like, you know, some way of encouraging, knowing that, hey, the church is not going to fail, but it's an incentive. And since the church is not going to fail, why not be a part of the victory? Why not be a soul winner? Why not have more crowns that you can place at the Lord's feet when you stand in His presence? Finally, the fourth promise is found in verse 12. He promises ownership. Look at verse 12. He overcomes. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. No, God writes his name on the things that he owns. Not because his stuff gets confused with other people's stuff. It's because he's saying, this belongs to me. I think maybe you guys have seen the movie Toy Story. If you had kids, I'm sure you've seen it. And, and on the bottom of, of uh, uh, Woody's shoes, it says Andy's on it. You know, Andy's, not, not the custard. Uh, it's ownership. We belong to God. It speaks of a permanent relationship. Jesus is saying as a Christian, when you are, arrive in heaven, man, I'm writing you on you three names. The name of my God the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, and I'll, and, and I'll write him my new name. She's saying, Pastor Tom, are we going to have tattoos in heaven? I mean, I'd want tattooed. What I'm saying is somehow, Jesus is going to mark us for all eternity. So that wherever we go, through the vastness of all eternity and God's new creation, we're going to bear those three names. Let's leave it up to God how he wants to mark us, you know, on that. I, I think of my kids when they were young, they're marking all over themselves and writing themselves up, you know. But here's another way to think about it. You know, uh, in our culture, when a wife gets married, she takes on the name of her husband and she lives in the same home as her husband. She takes on his name, which is his father's family name for generations, and she has a new address. The church is the group that will have these names in heaven for all eternity. Why? Because we are the bride of Jesus Christ. And finally, Jesus closes as he does in each one of his letters in verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we all have ears. So what are we hearing this message this morning? I think the message is the Lord is opening up doors that he wants us to walk through. His Spirit is telling us what doors to open up, where we can go serve. Both in the church, I think, and in the world. I mean, there's opportunities to serve in the church. Doors opening in the children's ministry. You know, doors opening prayer ministry, the worship ministry. Doors that are opening. We need to walk through them. And I I would very much like our church to be like Philadelphia. And I I think we are. You know, maybe it's pride and I should repent of it. But, but, you know, I I love our church. and, And God has given us opportunities to reach the world. And we can start right here in our own community. There's an event, and I, we don't have it listed yet, but there's an event coming up in May. Uh, I think we're all aware of Convoy of Hope. They've been in Springfield for years. And they're going to have a big event at the fairgrounds in May to reach out to the community. And they're going to provide groceries for them and, and, and medical appointments and, and, and haircuts and, and, and sharing the gospel. And, and we're going to be a part of that as a church to reach our community. You know, getting into action what we need to do. But also, you know, I'm excited about Harvest America. 
And, and this is like, this is coming up. We have this opportunity right now to take those flyers, take those invite cards, and invite people to come out next Sunday. That's why we're going to have them passed out to you on your way out. You can take one of those. But uh, really begin praying for that open door that, that would continue for us to share the gospel to the world that so desperately needs to hear the truth. And what's the truth? That God loves them, that God has a plan for their lives, that Jesus Christ died for them, and if they put their faith and trust in Him, they can have their sin forgiven, they can have abundant life on this earth, but most importantly, they can have eternal life with, with God. Perhaps this morning, the door Jesus wants you to walk through is the most important door of all, and that is committing your life and heart to Jesus Christ. Coming to Him, seeking that forgiveness of your sin, uh, and, and then committing your life to serving Him and following Christ. I tell you this, it's a life of joy and peace and hope, something that the world cannot offer. And if you have not given your life to Christ this morning, man, Jesus, he's standing at the door and he's knocking. We'll look at this next week. If you open that door, he's going to come into your life and he's going to give you that forgiveness and he's going to give you that peace and he's going to give you that joy. But you've got to come to him. He's not in the business of knocking down doors. It's got to be your decision. If you want to make that decision today, as soon as service is over in just a moment, the elders will come up front. They'll be up here on the stage and, and I just encourage you to come up and ask to be prayed for. Tell us, hey man, I want to give my life to Christ. And we'll give you a Bible and we'll help you in your walk with the Lord. For the rest of us, let's look for those opportunities. What God has for us, I'm excited to see where God's going to go and the doors He's going to open and, and we'll just keep trusting in Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time this morning, Lord. We thank You for Your Word and how powerful it is to change our lives to encourage us, to exhort us, Lord, as, as I feel we've all been exhorted this morning, myself included, to get going. Lord, we recognize we live in a time of the end times where the days, Lord, we don't know how much time we have. They could be short. Lord, we want to make every opportunity to reach those with the hope that we have. Help us, Lord, not to grow weary in doing good, Lord, but to look to you, to keep our focus on you, to rely on the power of your Holy Spirit, to accomplish great things because we serve a great God. And we give you all the glory and power and, 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 and honor for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.